Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. An evening summer storm rolls through a small town in Maine when a beloved teenager is brutally murdered. She was a cheerleader, soccer player, great musician. It really shook that town to the core. Everybody was in shock. Because of the weather, investigators are left with little to go on. A real heavy rain can destroy pretty much any evidence that you would have. People are pointing fingers in every direction. And so there was a lot of avenues to explore. As the case drags on for decades, will justice prevail? The storm was the thing that really made the case unsolvable. Sometimes Mother Nature can be an investigation's worst nightmare. In Penobscot County, Maine, about an hour north of Bangor, lies East Millinocket, a tiny speck of a town with a tight-knit community. It was very much what you would imagine a small town in Maine was like. It was community parenting. Everybody took care of everybody else. There was no fear in the streets. Doors were unlocked. The area is known as the town that paper made, as many found employment with the local paper mills that fueled their economy for decades. There were two paper mills, one in East Millinocket, and then there was one about 10 miles north in Millinocket. But really, the two communities were so joined, and have always been that way. So a majority of people were tied to the paper industry. Whether you cut wood and hauled wood, or you worked in the mills, and sons grew up to work with their fathers in the mill. Just a typical main mill town. People grew up there, stayed there, went to work there, retired there, basically. So it was deep roots in the community. Surrounded by wilderness and just 30 miles southeast of Mount Katahdin, the area requires a certain amount of hardiness, especially when it comes to the weather. The weather was pretty drastic. I mean, it can be mid to upper 90s in the summertime to 20, 30 below in the winter. Along with the extreme temperatures, the precipitation can also be drastic. This is because as air approaches the mountains, it's forced upward. It cools and condenses, forming clouds and eventually precipitation. Now, in the winter, this can fall as heavy snow. In the summer, heavy rain and thunderstorms. They'll come in quickly, especially up in that area, because some of the stuff comes right down off Mount Katahdin, and it kind of gets funneled into Millinocket and East Millinocket. In fact, everyone in East Millinocket expects summers to be hot and steamy, with the chance of a rainstorm almost daily. Maine can get very humid. A lot of people don't necessarily realize. It'd be very common to have a very strong, powerful lightning storm with heavy rain just to release the humidity and the condensation. Because of the mountain ranges, storms can pop up very quick and become very violent and then take off very, very quickly as well. And that's exactly what happened on Friday, August 8, 1980. 
Then the rainstorm comes in. It was a heavy storm, lightning, thunder, a lot of downpour. And that was the beginning of the nightmare for the McLean family and for East Millinock. Police get a highly unusual call from the McLean family. They say that 16-year-old Joyce McLean is missing. Joyce went out for a jog to start getting in shape for soccer season that was coming. And she never came back. Joyce McLean was born in Windsor, Vermont on September 4, 1963. She grew up in a small house with her mom, Pamela, stepfather, Mike, and her younger sister, Wendy. They were just off the main drag, not by a lot, and the mill is not even a mile from their house. From a young age, she was a bright, bubbly girl with a knack for excelling at anything she tried her hand at. Joyce had a bit of a glow about her. Blonde haired, blue eyed, pretty. She was artistic and expressive and funny. In 1979, Joyce attended Skank High School. East Millinock, it wasn't a large school. I would say maybe back then in the high school, guessing 150, 200 students around there. Uh, very small. Joyce's warm and sincere nature helped her make friends easily. Joyce was extremely sweet, very nice to everybody. Everyone would have considered Joyce to be a friend of theirs. Um, I remember her smile. Then the following year at age 16, Joyce's parents decided to divorce. Despite the change, Joyce continued to excel. Joyce was a cheerleader, soccer player, great musician, uh, played tennis, and never said a bad word about anybody, just extremely popular. She was also very interested in the upcoming soccer season. Joyce had told friends that she wanted to, to get shape. She started running, started jogging. Joyce had her whole life ahead of her, and her future was beyond promising until August 8, 1980, when young Joyce McLean seemingly vanished without a trace. The following afternoon, officers from the East Millinocket Police Department arrived to speak with Joyce's mother, Pam. They're asking, when did you last see her? You know, where do you think she would be? That type of thing. Pam tells police she last saw her daughter around 7 p.m. the night before, when Joyce left for her run. She says she was wearing a pink jogging suit and sneakers. She was an avid runner, and she liked to do a loop through the neighborhood, around the soccer field at Skank High School, which is about a mile and a half total distance from her house, round trip. She attempted to call one of her friends to join her in the run, but she didn't get any answers, so she told mom, hey, I'm gonna go for a run, be back shortly. When hours went by and Joyce hadn't returned home, Pam says she got worried. Then the weather turned for the worse. That evening around 10 p.m., a strong thunderstorm developed in the area with heavy rain, lightning, and thunder. Joyce hadn't come home. And I think some of the first thoughts were, you know, did she stay the night at somebody's house? 
it wasn't necessarily unusual for Joyce to go to her friend's house. So I think early on, the, the nervousness was, okay, let's call all of her friends. But she wasn't with any of her friends, couldn't be found anywhere. Back in 1980, there was no internet, there was no email, there were no cell phones. Pam says she called Joyce's stepfather and other family members. But by the morning, there was still no word from Joyce. Saturday morning, still didn't hear from her. No one saw her. That's really when they became concerned. The entire town joined the police to find Joyce McLean. It would have been an all-hands-on-deck approach to a search. The weather is about to play a key role in an investigation that will span decades. I think the detectives had an overwhelming journey ahead of them. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. In the summer of 1980, 16-year-old Joyce McLean disappeared while out for an evening jog when a massive thunderstorm rolled through her hometown of East Millinocket, Maine. Thunderstorms develop because of instability in the atmosphere. You have cooler air aloft and warm air closer to the ground. Now, during the summer months, the ground is heated rapidly by the sun, and that leads to widespread instability. We don't get a lot of lingering thunderstorms. Thunderstorms will come through, so you may get one, and then all of a sudden you may get another one. (laughs) 
After East Millinocket police officers speak with Joyce's mother, Pam, they make a plan to retrace Joyce's steps the night before. She had told her mother she was going out for a jog, and she had uh, left her house, and she was jogging towards the high school on a, what would have been a, a regular run route for her. The investigators back then, they did a tremendous job going down her jogging route and how it went from her house. It was about a mile. It was more of a square, rectangle route that she ran on the, the outer edge of the, of the town. Detectives were trying to backtrack where she would have gone. Everyone in town pitches in. Everybody knew who Joyce McLean was. It was a small town. It would have been a sense of obligation and duty that every adult in that town would have felt because it's, it, Joyce was one of their own. Some people even remembered seeing Joyce jogging that evening. They did the neighborhood canvas, and they found witnesses that put her on the street going up to the back of the school. They found a witness that saw her jog right by, waved to her, and she waved back. They all described you know, a pink terry cloth jogging suit, white socks, green and white sneakers. She was seen by several witnesses there jogging near the dugouts of the softball field and eventually, you know, on to kind of run parallel to the soccer field. And that was when she was last seen. Officers continue to scour the area through the evening hours, but there's no sign of the teenager. They're thinking, did something happen to Joyce? But I mean, it's East Millinocket. People do not go missing in, in East Millinocket because everybody knows everybody. The concern for Joyce's location was really growing. Right through dark on Saturday, they were looking, asking questions, who's seen her and where she could be. They started arranging groups of people to go out in different areas of the town to start searching more methodical, a little bit bigger scale. But then another weather system rolls through the area. Another band of thunderstorms came through, dumping over a half inch of rain and winds gusting over 40 miles an hour. They had a, just a horrific rain into Saturday evening, just torrential rain, which affected everything. When the thunderstorm came through and kind of held up everybody from looking, it set everything back hours because people went home. A much more organized search is scheduled to get underway the next morning until police get word of a horrible discovery. Nobody had any inkling of anything that was about to happen. Early the next morning, police receive a disturbing call from a man named Peter Larley. Peter Larley was an acquaintance of the family uh, and knew Joyce. They, they were very friendly with each other. He was an older kid. I mean, he was in his early 20s. He kind of hung with, you know, some of the, the kids his age as well as some of the younger kids. Peter was eager to look for Joyce, so he decides to go out at first light. He tells officers that he found Joyce McLean behind the high school, and he's pretty sure she's dead. An officer meets up with Peter in the area where he says he found Joyce's body. She was found in a strange place. Uh, there's a clearing behind Skank High School that power lines run through. It's very wild and overgrown. Kids used to like to party behind Skank High School. It's kind of isolated out there, so kids would gather out there. 
Right away, the East Millinocket officer can tell that Joyce has been viciously attacked. They didn't do a lot of homicides, so they call the Maine State Police. Our detectives are assigned, and they come in, and now they stop looking at the scene. Investigators arrive to the area and examine Joyce's body first. She was found uh, lying face down, and her head was kind of turned to the right. Her hands were bound with a, a blue cloth. She was unclothed except for her socks and sneakers. She had bruises on her, on her chest and her neck and um, very significant head trauma. This was probably an attempted sexual assault. That was the feeling right from the start, just how she was posed. As they look for evidence, detectives know the recent stormy weather most likely had a devastating impact on the crime scene. Obviously, it was any evidence, whether you're looking for hairs, fibers, uh, fingerprints, really the big things back then, they knew that the heavy rainstorm was going to make it extremely challenging. Heat and humidity fueled two straight days of heavy rain and wind. The heavy rains and the amount of time really affected their crime scene. I'm sure some things that were there weren't there anymore. As police continue to scour the crime scene for clues, detectives gear up for the murder investigation of their careers. It was a multi-agency investigation. Everybody was brought in. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. In August 1980, 
teenager Joyce McLean has been found naked and bludgeoned to death behind the local high school after massive thunderstorms rolled through her hometown of East Millinocket, Maine. There was one Friday evening and then another Saturday with about a half inch of rain and winds gusting up to 40 miles an hour. Rains have left detectives with little physical evidence from the scene. We didn't have footwear impressions. We didn't have fingerprints. We didn't have things that we would normally look for. Investigators are able to tell that Joyce's body hasn't been moved since the attack. There were some spray patterns in the bushes that were consistent with her head being struck multiple times. The weather didn't wash that away because it was on the underside of the ferns. And I especially found that very important because that means at least one or more of the blows were struck while she's on the ground. Based on the level of decomposition, they believe Joyce most likely was killed as soon as she went missing on Friday night. But the summer weather may have sped up the process. The body was wet. Some of the advanced post-mortem changes were a result of the environment and the heat and weather that, that Joyce was in. After searching the immediate area, detectives noticed that her jogging outfit is nowhere to be found. She was unclothed, other, you know, socks and sneakers, but there, there wasn't evidence of anything else. Police bring in a canine unit to search the area. They find some of her clothing hidden under a rock along a rock wall, short distance from there. The dogs also found possible weapons that police believe may have been used in the attack. A rock and a large electrical insulator. There were two pieces of the insulator. One was a smaller piece that, you know, obviously broke off from the original piece, the smaller piece, and it had ridges. It had a ridge pattern on it that, you know, was more in line with the injuries. The canine unit also tracks down the direction the perpetrator may have fled afterward. So the rain hit and it did wash away a lot of evidence, but the police weren't left with absolutely nothing. As they wrap up the crime scene and send Joyce's body for an autopsy, police know they're going to need all the help they can get. It was a multi-agency um, investigation. Everybody was brought in. Sheriff's Department, East Mill, Millinocket PD, everybody. While detectives head over to Joyce's home to break the terrible news to her family, others bring Peter Larley to the police station for questioning. Peter found the body before any official search got started. And by him doing that, he kind of became a suspect very early on. police station, detectives sit down with Peter Larley to talk about his discovery of Joyce's body. According to Peter, he had grown restless waiting for the Sunday morning search to get underway. He decided that he wanted to go out and look on his own. Peter wants to be the hero. He wants to be the one to find Joyce safe, ideally. Peter explains why he went behind the school. Someone had said that she'd been out behind Skank, and kids used to like to party 
out on the power line behind Skank High School. And there was a lot of different parties off and on that were out there. So he went out on the power line. And he sees a body. He doesn't want to believe it's Joyce, but you know, that's who they're looking for. It's not going to be anybody else. This has got to be Joyce. Just how she was positioned led him to believe that she was deceased. So he immediately left and went and notified Eastmill PD. Peter appears upset over Joyce's death. Still, they ask where he was Friday night, and he has a solid alibi. Peter was out four-wheeling with some people and doing some other things that night, and we, we affirmed that. We cleared Peter Larley. Meanwhile, investigators break the news to the McLean family, who are just overcome with grief. Pam was devastated. She just couldn't put her head around why somebody would do something like this to her daughter. Word of Joyce's brutal murder spreads like wildfire in the small town. Everybody was in shock to think that a 16-year-old girl would be brutally attacked. A girl that everybody knew. Nobody knew if the killer was still in East Melanoc or where they were. As detectives work tirelessly to find Joyce's killer, the tiny town of East Millinocke loses its innocence. People are pointing fingers in every direction. I just remember so distinctly the fear. It was tangible. Everybody was afraid. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. After the violent murder of 16-year-old Joyce McLean in East Millinocket, Maine, just before a thunderstorm hit the area, investigators are left with few clues. The storm was probably the thing that got the case off to the worst possible start. 
It washed away a lot of physical evidence. The once carefree town is now locked up tight. It basically changed the community overnight. I mean, we're used to ride around town and see people walking. There was nobody. Uh, where you see kids going to school by themselves or whatever. Everybody who was going somewhere was going in groups. Nobody knew if the killer was still in East Melanarchan or where they were. Fear is the worst contagion known to man, fear. It's worse than any virus. And once fear starts kicking in, things just explode so quickly. And that was happening back then. I just remember so distinctly the fear. Immediately, you locked the doors. Windows were shut and locked at night. It became instantaneously a 180-degree different place to live. In the meantime, without much to go on, investigators hope the autopsy will provide some answers. The same day, when the autopsy is complete, it's clear Joyce fought her attacker hard. She had bruises on her neck, um, pretty significant impressions, her chest, a fractured jaw, black eye, facial trauma. They found that she had ligature marks around her neck consistent with strangulation, and that she had also been hit over the head by a blunt instrument. Joyce has braided lacerations in her skull. Those findings fit very well with the potential murder weapon, which was a, a thick uh, ceramic insulator uh, that was found close to where the body was. Investigators wonder if more than one person might be involved. Joyce is a fighter. She'll be able to fight off one or two people. But I think overall, it's really difficult to say it could be possible that one person render her unresponsive with a significant blow. Despite the hot and wet weather, the ME is also able to establish a probable time of death. And it's just what detectives surmised. She had a very minimal amount of rigor mortis, which puts her somewhere in that close to 36 hour window of time of death, which tracks us back to very close to probably the evening of the 8th. Investigators believe she was nabbed as she jogged behind the school, and the storm most likely gave the killer cover to assault Joyce. Anybody that may have potentially wandered over to the power line because it was such a beautiful night, once the storm hit, I think the opportunity for that was gone. The town essentially shut down. The thunder also could have masked her screams. A lightning bolt only takes a few thousandths of a second to split through the air. Now, the loud thunder we hear is commonly said to come from the bolt, but actually that rumble that you're hearing is from that expansion of air surrounding the bolt. We believe that she was killed either shortly before the rain or during the time frame of the storm. Detectives hope some kind of evidence may be found on her clothing. We were able to determine that her outfit was cut, so we know that a knife was involved. They were hoping maybe they'd find hairs, or you find fibers, but they didn't because the weather washed a lot away. DNA was fairly new, and the methods of getting it were new. The most important detail, however, was that it appeared Joyce was not sexually assaulted. Back in East Millinocket, police fan out across the area. They threw a lot of resources at this immediately. They interviewed a ton of people. 
They tracked down as many people as they could that were there Friday night for the ball tournament. They interviewed a lot of people that were doing the construction work at the mill, and nothing strong really ever came out of that. Police look at criminal histories, but that doesn't turn up anything. The problem with all of that was they had no physical evidence that really tied anybody to it. It was truly a whodunit. Investigators have to start to wonder, could someone from the area have killed Joyce? They were looking at anybody and everybody as a potential suspect. After speaking with local teens, investigators learned that a couple of guys had been seen in the parking lot of the high school Friday night before the storm. And one of the names piques detectives' interest, 19-year-old Philip Scott Fournier. He was known to be a very heavy drinker, known to party with some of the older kids, had a reputation of kind of being somewhat of a troublemaker. Everybody pretty much knew him, knew of him, knew he was quite a partier. Investigators want to talk to Scott, but unfortunately, they can't. They learned that around 3 a.m. on the morning after Joyce went missing, Scott was intoxicated and got in a serious car accident. That night, Scarfonia stole an oil truck, goes down the road a short distance, rolls it over, and he winds up in the hospital. He was in a coma and did have some severe head trauma. While investigators wait for Scott to recover, they bring in one of his friends for questioning, 19-year-old Leroy Spearin. Scott was seen that night up behind the school with Leroy. Leroy was interviewed. The young man admits that he was hanging out all night with Scott, but doesn't recall seeing Joyce. He denies having anything to do with her murder. I don't believe Leroy admitted being behind the power line. He may have provided some information, maybe of where they were, where they went, but most importantly, he was with Scott all night. After eight days, Scott Fournier finally comes out of his coma. Police wait a few weeks to pay him a visit. The concern was that he, you know, obviously he had head trauma and they wanted to at least attempt to get a good interview where he's not on pain meds. Six weeks after Joyce's murder, investigators speak with Scott at the hospital. Initially, he says, no, I did not kill Joyce. I don't have any idea. I mean, he's cooperative. He is able to give some chronology of what he did. So he said he was with the Spearin throughout the night. I believe he even, he might have said he was at the school, but he didn't even know Joyce McLean. And then they went to a party at a friend's house, and there was a group of people there. By his own admission, he was drinking. And then his story was he left left on his bike. Scott says that's all he remembers about that night. There are times when a severe head injury may involve some kind of amnesia. And when you have that kind of issue in any investigation, trying to put the story together is very challenging. What I recall being significant is that he claimed he didn't even know Joyce McLean. Everybody knew that was a lie because everybody knew Joyce. Investigators continue to chase down other leads while Scott goes into a rehab program. But it's not until nine months later that detectives speak with him again. 
he approached law enforcement with the understanding that he may know something about Joyce's murder. Scott sits down with police again, but is what he has to say the confession of a guilt-ridden young man suffering from brain damage or a manipulative, cold-blooded killer? I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at Skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. Millinocket, Maine police investigating the murder of teenager Joyce McLean have a suspect who has now come forward with information, Philip Scott Fournier. He was someone who might have had guilty knowledge if not been an actual participant. This could be the break investigators need after a thunderstorm washed away most of their physical evidence. The number one problem with this case is the lack of forensic or physical evidence, hair and fiber evidence, DNA, blood. These are all things that the weather just eliminated. Scott tells detectives that the night Joyce was murdered, he had been drinking heavily at a party. He did say to the police, that he was with a group of other people and that he did remember a crime involving a young woman. At this party, he overheard a conversation about some people grabbing a girl, tying her up, assaulting her, and somebody hitting her. It was unclear who he heard it from, but this is what he heard at a party. Scott says he left the party on his bike, eventually ending up under the power line. May have seen somebody and may have fallen on Joyce's body. A lot of these vague references, but nothing really solid, you know, pointing to his involvement. Unfortunately, Scott's memories are foggy and he can't provide any more details. They're forced to let him go. The police can't trust any of it because of his brain injury and the fact that he was heavily intoxicated that night. Then a week later, state police in Bangor get a surprise visit from Scott. This time he's with his pastor, Vinyl Thomas, who says Scott has made a stunning confession. Scott tells Pastor Thomas that he killed Joyce McLean. And that's when he became a suspect again, really strong. When Scott sits down with state detectives, they hope to hear a full confession, but he quickly changes his tune. And he denies that he killed her. So you've got him 
saying this to the pastor. And now, by the time they get him down there, he winds up changing his story. During his interview, Scott begins to offer up names of others who may have been involved in Joyce's murder. Grant Boynton was one, because he knew that Joyce and Grant were really close. So that was an easy target. Scott says that two friends named Gary and Roger could have done it, or the friend whose party he went to that night. And his story was that Gary and Roger took her out on the power line, and it went bad, and he killed her. And then there was Austin was the boy that had the party that night, so he threw him under the bus. More stories were derived, and it, it soon became very challenging with how credible is the information coming from Scott Fournier. Police will follow up on Scott's information, but in the meantime, it's still not enough to keep him in custody. Just because somebody confesses to something, that doesn't mean they did it, that doesn't mean you can arrest them. You need probable cause, you need evidence, and they didn't have that. In the following months, investigators are able to clear everyone that Scott mentioned. They wonder if everything Fournier has told them is just the imaginings of a damaged brain. He is notoriously always falling back on the brain injury thing. That was kind of his ace on the hole, right? For a long time. When you have gaps in memory like that, it's also very convenient to not remember things that you do remember. They continue to work the case for years, interviewing Fournier multiple times and getting no closer to the truth. It soon becomes the most notorious cold case in Maine. There wasn't a year that went by that somebody didn't come in with something that we gave to state police. Then in October of 1988, her mother Pam forms the Justice for Joyce Committee. They held fundraisers. They did things that kept them in the public eye through the 90s. Pam, she never let up. She dug and dug and dug and always got a lot of information. Um, she talked to us pretty much weekly. But by 2008, Joyce's family worries there will be no justice for Joyce. With advances in DNA technology, they raise enough money for the exhumation of Joyce's body. They were hoping, ideally, to be able to get some DNA evidence. Unfortunately, we just didn't have any success with that. The autopsy, however, is successful in other ways. State police saw this as an opportunity to go, OK, let's relook at this case. Let's start right from scratch. We met with all the old investigators and kind of discussed the case. We sat in a big room, and we went through this piece by piece and we formed a plan to go at this like it was a current homicide. And we went after it hard. Cold case detectives re-interview witnesses and find their smoking gun. That was a big thing, because only the murderer would know that. Intense summer thunderstorms in East Millinocket, Maine, during the murder of 16-year-old Joyce McLean, hurt the investigation right from the start. There had been not one, but two serious thunderstorms during that time that just saturated the area. 
The downpour of rain immediately compromised the search for her and washed away critical evidence. It was a challenge for investigators. Had it not been raining, my guess is they would have found some physical evidence. The investigation has been dragging on for decades, but now in 2008, cold case detectives are taking fresh eyes to the case. We met with witnesses. Some had never um, spoken to detectives before. We were able to obtain many more details. I kept coming back to Scott. Always came back to Scott. Even though Scott Fournier claimed that he did know Joyce, detectives learned that wasn't the case at all. There was information that he was at Joyce McLean's residence a day or two prior to the crime. A group of Joyce's friends were over for pizza, and Scott was included. It appeared to really make a pretty significant impression on Scott. He knew Joyce was going for a jog. So Scott made a comment that he wants to give up smoking, he wants to take up jogging. One new witness places Scott Fournier going behind the school at dusk on August 8th. At around the time, Joyce would have been jogging behind the school as well. So we got him in proximity of the school around the time of the crime. And when they re-interview Scott's pastor, who he originally confessed to, investigators learn a key piece of new information. He asked Scott specifically, did you sexually assault her? Did you have sex with her? And he responded that Scott's answer was, I tried, but it was that time of month. I mean, that was a big thing. Only the murderer knew that she was having her period. That was information never released to the public. So we knew that that was critical, that in our eyes clearly indicated that Philip Scott Fournier was responsible for Joyce McLean's death. In December 2009, police publicly named Scott Fournier as a suspect in the murder of Joyce McLean. And that was an amazing moment. I remember calling Pam immediately and just the, the joy um, in her voice. Unfortunately, officially arresting him will have to wait until he serves time for child pornography. A leopard don't change his stripes. It's not until March 2016, 36 years after Joyce's murder, that police charge him. Fearing that he'll never get a fair trial by jury, Fournier chooses to proceed with a bench trial. A judge alone will decide his fate. I think they thought they had a strong enough case that it was circumstantial that they'd be able to convince a judge that it wasn't Scott. On Monday, January 22nd, 2018, Scott's trial begins. Prosecutors say they believe that Scott became obsessed with Joyce after seeing her at the pizza party several days before. So we know that there was this connection and whether following this, Joyce had kind of shunned him or something along those lines, we kind of question that as being a possibility. They say that on the evening of August 8th, as Joyce jogged by the high school, a drunken Scott Fournier saw his opportunity. He lured her out on the power line. And it could have been on a pretext of, listen, there's a party out here and everybody's out here. 
Once there, they believe Joyce started to fight him off, and Scott may have hit her to subdue her, and then tried to sexually assault her. He wanted to have some form of sex with her, but she was on her period, and uh, the tampon would have interfered with that. Maybe Joyce could have regained consciousness and kind of resumed the fight. It is believed Scott then lost control. Out of anger, he picked up the insulator and he hit her in the head. And then he hit her again when she's down on the ground. The insulator matched right up with the marks on the head. They say later he tried to kill himself in the car crash, possibly out of guilt. But Scott's defense attorneys pounce on the lack of any forensic evidence and claim that Scott's confessions were unreliable due to his brain injury. But then you go with his actions down the road. He showed way too much cleverness. On February 22, 2018, the judge finds 57-year-old Scott Fournier guilty of Joyce's murder and sentences him to 45 years in prison. Immediately, it was like this giant sigh of the area. For the first time, East Millinocket was able to step out from underneath the shadow of this. Although justice for Joyce has finally been achieved, the McLeans and the town of East Millinocket are forever damaged by what Scott Fournier did. A lot of things died with Joyce McLean. A lot of childhoods, freedoms, innocence, a very wholesome, uh, wonderful community uh, became fractured. And closure may have occurred much sooner if it wasn't for the summertime weather. The weather definitely was a factor. The case possibly could have been shortened had it not been such a uh, torrential rain.